Stories podcast. Welcome back to the show. How's everyone doing? Remember, you can get in touch with us on social. All of our handles are Backpack Digital or email me at Hayden at TravelStoriesPodcast.com. I love talking to you guys. I want to meet up with some of you on the road in Europe. Let me know where you guys are and we can hang out and stuff. On to today, Eric Trules, or just Trules to his friends, has been a professional in the literary, performing and filmic arts. Filmic arts. I never knew that was how that was said, but filmic arts for almost five decades. He's worked as a dancer, done theatre, an actor and even as a clown. How cool is that? For me, what's so interesting about Trules is his life outside of this and his thoughts on life and travel. He kind of takes what he's learned in his many decades of performance and applies it to thinking about travel. This is such an interesting episode and his story. Ah, you guys are going to love this. Also, if you like this show, which I'm hoping that you do, you're going to love Trules's. Trules's? We'll go with Trules's. It's E-Travels with E-Trules. Everything will be in the show notes. It contains musical scores, sound effects, and everything in between. And the icing on the cake really is Trules's. I'm going to go with it again. Trules's magnificent voice and his stories. Ah, man, I highly recommend it. I love it. Anyway, I've talked for far too long now, so let's get to the show. Here is the story from and our interview with Eric Trules. It's May 1999, Israel. Travel is easy in 1999, and I have this idea to go out into the desert, as in Sinai Desert, as in camels, Bedouins, Moses, the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments. Because the Sinai is to Israelis as Baja is to Angelinos. A quick tourist hop over the border, but with aquamarine coral reef seawaters, rugged rust and sand-colored hills jutting into the intense blue sky, hot desert-baking sun sapping all logic and ambition out of you, strains of tabla and oud music tickling the air, lines of primitive straw, Bedouin huts called khushas, dotting the sand and stone shore for a hundred miles on end. The best of Israel comes down here to escape the life and death intensity of their existential days to days, unwinding, de-stressing, till one day melts into another, and then into a week when you suddenly find yourself ticking to a different clock. The suns, the earths, the seas. Where the Sinai slows you down until time is lost and you have no desire to return to that careful and clever thing we invented, civilization. I've bussed south from Jerusalem through the Negev, crossed the still friendly border at Eilat, 
and taxied down to a small Bedouin camp on the Red Sea called Rosh Asetan, Head of the Devil, where I've come to lie around in the heat of the day with alternative Tel Aviv types, eating hummus, tahina, slurping mint tea, playing backgammon, reading Amos Oz and Nagib Mahfouz. Until I get the lazy urge to put on a mask and snorkel, walk down 20 yards from my husha into the salty Red Sea, and marvel at the fan-shaped, moving coral reef. I swim with the fishes, God-painted and neon-lit creatures making me feel like either Jacques Cousteau or one of the fishes themselves. At night, I adventure out for a mini-history lesson to see what those parting the Red Sea Jews experienced for 40 years before reaching the Promised Land. I speak to my new Bedouin friend, swarthy, cool Adnan. Hey, Adnan, my man, can you take me for a two-day overnight camel safari out into the Great Sinai? where I can walk in the steps of Moses and Joshua and sleep under the dark, infinite sky of the nomadic Bedouin? Trulas, my man, you have to round up four more adventurers for this camel safari you want to take, because we must take five, six camels, drivers, enough food, blankets, and supplies for both riders and drivers to make the trip worthwhile. If you know what I mean, my man. And so, I do. Because I do know what he means. So, I round up two stiff-lipped Israeli soldiers on holiday and an adventurous Italian painter and his Brazilian girlfriend. And the five of us go down with Adnan and his six camel drivers on a two-day camel safari overnight into the Sinai. Our plan is to slow down and uncivilize ourselves enough, to recalibrate our souls, to sleep in the cool night air of the biblical diamond star sky. No tools, no agenda, no anything, just life. It's dark now. Very dark, night one. Our five camels are parked about three miles into the Sinai Canyon. The hairy beasts are kneeling, sleeping in the sand, making a variety of obscene grunting, farting noises under an otherwise noiseless, starlit sky. The ride has been bumpy. I've been squeezed into a camel saddle about half the size I need. No room for me to sit frontward without comical genital pain. So I've ridden Bedouin style, sitting three quarters sideways, both legs draping over to the right of the camel. After about 10 minutes, it's inordinately painful. My ass is killing me. And by the end of the day, we've gone only about five miles. But Adnan and his six camel drivers have made life and comfort out of the thin desert air, 
no tools, just found sticks, rocks, shrubs, stones, and a Zippo lighter. And we're sitting around a roaring fire on ten multicolored blankets. We're eating a tasty macaroni and canned tuna casserole, drinking bottled water that the camel drivers have carried for us, and we're singing some kind of simple Arabic melody under a magnificent desert sky. Um, We even have a little local herb for a nightcap. There are no borders, no politics, not even, according to Adnan, any religion. It's the way people have lived in this desert for thousands of years. Nomadic, respectful, dependent, and cooperative with the land. The next day, we're up at dawn. The sky is gray, but the air is dry and already too warm. The camel crew is packing up our gear, loading down our beasts of burden with hundreds of pounds of blankets, food, water, and even our used trash. Before we set off on day two, we have a few breadsticks and some local herbal tea. Then off we go into the land that Moses, Joshua, and the escape from Egypt Red Sea Jews wandered for 40 years. It's harsh and beautiful. Rocky red granite hills, life-devouring sun, occasionally merciful shade. Sometimes we have to walk through narrow canyons that the camels can't fit through. The drivers take them off in the opposite direction until half an hour later, they mysteriously reappear beyond the impasse. Never have I appreciated a swallow of water as much as when we see those beastly camels again. Now it's midday and the sun is at its peak. Where's the ruler of the Sinai? Adnan and his drivers track its course across the incandescent sky, and they anticipate every angle of shade a cliff can provide. Two hours later, we see a cluster of raggedy green palm and fig trees. It's a mirage, right? No, gringo. You're in the middle of the Sinai Desert. It's actually an oasis, and Adnan is sitting on his haunches, mixing a combination of flour and salt and water into sticking mounds of dough. It's as if our camels have been carrying the desert-proof ingredients in these carefully wrapped plastic bags for centuries. Another quick Zippo-lit fire in a thousand-year-old black iron pan, and we have magically produced handmade pita. It's also miraculously delicious. It makes me think of the price we've paid for modern civilization, with its computers, its comforts and conveniences, 
it's instant transportation and technology. Because here, in the middle of the desert, you become acutely aware of how much we've lost touch with nature and her elements. Fire, air, earth, water. But also, how much we've lost touch with ourselves. With the very things that used to make us human, using our hands to make things and make the food we eat, being reliant on our families and neighbors, attuning our lives to the cycles of the day, to the climate, to the season. Now other things make us human. Our materialism, our cyber technology, our politics, and our multinational prejudices. No longer are we dependent on the beauty or cycles of the moon, the changing of the tides, the rising and setting of the sun. Instead, we disrespect and ignore Mother Nature, and indeed ourselves. We've become victims of our own post-industrial technologies. Sure, I know the other side, that we're so much more comfortable, more knowledgeable. We can live decades longer. We're more scientifically and philosophically evolved, more politically correct. We have women's rights, gay marriage, sometimes civil rights, and sometimes we take better care of the environment. But we've lost our sense of awe in the power of the natural universe, in its magic, in its wrath. We've lost community and family and interdependence on one another. Okay, okay, enough. Somehow, we make it through the scorching day, and now we're camel camp for our second night. We're sitting around another Zippo-lit fire on our mismatched sleeping bags, watching the huge orange moon rise over the Gulf of Aqaba. There are showers of stars in the sky. The moon's reflection is dancing off the water to the oriental sounds of an Egyptian oud and a Turkish finger drum. We're taking our turns around a sweet-smelling Nargila water pipe, and I am experiencing a grateful and rare feeling of contentment. Perhaps even one of Spaulding's perfect moments. And now, it's over 15 years later. There are no more friendly Israeli borders. Mr. Sharon and Mr. Arafat are both long gone. Rasha Shetan has been bombed to smithereens by Islamic terrorists. And terror and anger explode daily in Palestine, Israel, and in the Sinai. There's bloodshed everywhere, and no peace and no trust in sight. Only hatred and history. I think maybe we should all go out into the desert. Take a camel safari. Forget about the international borders and the impotent mediators. And we should just see how much we all really 
have in common. guys just a quick one Hayden here if you are in Europe from July onwards for about a year or whatever or you live in mainland Europe let me know because I want to hang out with some people and you guys are the coolest people so let me know where you are email me Hayden at travelstoriespodcast.com now if you'll excuse me I've got to go teach my black country English for beginners lesson oh Yeah, you're in LA, right? Yep, in Echo Park at the Barbershop Sound Studio. Awesome. Do they record Barbershop there? Rock and roll, Echo Park music, and uh, sometimes some po travel podcasts. Hey, there you go. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's great. And speaking of travel podcasts, so we recently got in touch together and uh, learned about each other. And it seems that it seems that we're the same person, right? <laughs> with uh, a few years in between us <laughs> <laughs> yeah a few only a couple but some like-minded ideas absolutely yeah so e travels with e trules i've recently started listening to it and it's quickly becoming one of my favorite shows out there it's it's not only just because uh, it's a travel show and it's a, in a similar vein to to our show we like to bring in the inspiration and the, the scores and the the production side of it but it's just something about that and obviously your your voice is fantastic you have the perfect radio voice but i don't know it's something about it i i really really love it man would you mind telling our listeners what it's about and how it's how it's kind of made and uh, yeah well, uh, I have a long background as a performing artist and a writer and a storyteller. And um, in the last many years, I've focused more and more on travel stories. I have a, I've had a blog called E-Travels with E-Trules. And it really started uh, probably back in 2000 when I was in Southeast Asia in these little internet uh, coffee shops uh, outside of... Uh, Phnom Penh and uh, Hoi An and all these places uh, that you probably know of. And the internet was pretty primitive in Southeast Asia back in those days. Yet I could still reach all my friends on my list by spending an hour or two there and uh, writing usually these jazz, groovy riffs uh, uh, that were less story-driven but I really was able to capture the flavor of where I was and uh, my friends responded. And then one of my friends said, uh, let me help you develop a blog. And uh, she did a beautiful job. Uh, she called herself Rebopper. Uh, she did a beautiful design job, very uh, 1990s, <laughs> 2000. Uh, you can still look at it on, on the web, but people tell me it's quite dated, Jules. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and then I started to perform them on stages around L.A. and sometimes uh, internationally so that one of my former students and uh, protege mentee said, you know, we really prefer hearing these stories with your voice as opposed to reading them. 
it's much easier, right? All we have to do is uh, sit there and listen. Uh, and I, he said, you should have a podcast. And I said, oh, no, another medium. Uh, and then synchronicity happened. You know, uh, life just sort of uh, cooperates sometimes when uh, you get a, a cue and you say yes. Uh, that's what improvisation is. Uh, and suddenly I had a, a grant uh, from USC, the university I teach at, and the support of the sound design program. And he volunteered all his student sound designers to start uh, designing uh, sound and effects for my uh, stories, my travel stories. And then somehow, uh, really through a payroll mechanism, just uh, through the university, they found a student composer who's studying film scoring at Cal State Northridge nearby Los Angeles. And that's Amanda Yomate. And my sound designer is Alicia Bermudez. And we really have a great collaboration where they listen to my stories and then we spot them. And it takes uh, weeks, uh, sometimes a month to put together a story. It's like scoring a film. She makes uh, the original music. She listens to the original gamelan music, for example, from Indonesia. Uh, and then rather than take something off the web, which, you know, is all tied up in rights, she is able to mimic it in a beautiful way. So she's able to capture the sound right from the location. So from the jet plane to the squawking chickens and the gunshots in Echo Park, I think it's easy to be transported into these stories. And then if you like the voice, not only the, the uh, technical or the vocal quality, but the, the writer's voice, who I hope has a little sense of humor and some insight, then you can go on a trip. And uh, people have told me with all the bad news out there, especially in our country, you know, to hear some other voice with some other information uh, and relieve you of that kind of inundation of stress and bad politics is a, is a lovely thing. So I've been excited and humbled by the feedback to the podcast. And I really appreciate uh, your enthusiasm for it and your having me on your show. Oh, absolutely, man. And how lucky are we to be, I mean, I'm working with the composer Cody Crabb and you, you're, you yourself are working with a composer. How lucky are we that we're working with these composers that can say, or you say to them, ah, yeah, this story's taking place in Cuba. And then a little while goes on and then they come back with this Cuban influenced music or, the, you know, in the, any place in the world. I agree. You know, uh, I, I live in Echo Park and it uh, used to be a uh, a Latino hipster barrio. Now it's a gentrified unbarrio, but we, we have a annual Cuban festival. So she literally composed Cuban music for when I went to the park and, uh, I said, it sounds more Havana than Havana. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. I don't know how they do it. You know, I mean, Cody, the composer for this show is the same. It, it could be from India. It could be these places he's never, he's never been to. <laughs> and, and he just, he knows, he gets the vibe. I listen to it and I go, yes, that, I, f I feel like I'm there. I feel like I remember this music. <laughs> yeah. Amanda said to me with great confidence and unfortunately or fortunately truth, she said, I think I know what kind of music you like. So she just hits it every time. You know? like, yeah, okay, that's good. Just uh, clip this and put it here. And, uh, you know, uh, 
that's pretty, uh, I, I guess that's what a composer has to do, collaborate and know the director or the, the storyteller in our case. Yeah, man, it's great. And something you were saying about about how with all the bad news, it's nice to hear these stories, these stories of of freedom, these stories of travel, these stories of wonder and all these other words that I could be saying now. And I think I like to think of it as inspiration, as being able to inspire people, maybe to travel, maybe to think about travel, maybe to think about life differently. How important is this kind of this inspiration, this ability to inspire to you, if at all? Is that something that you that you think about? Uh, I think of uh, listening to my stories uh, on two tracks. One, you can travel vicariously through a good travel story and you can get immersed in the sound and the music and the food. You can almost, uh, you know, do everything that the storyteller's communicating. You can share with them. But also uh, for those people who have traveled a lot and know the places, the fact that we both know a lot Vietnam uh, if I've captured it truthfully and accurately, you know, it, it rings a, a, a real bell and cord of uh, affection or disaster or whatever happened to you in that place. So it's for uh, real travelers and vicarious travelers and uh, uh, wannabe travelers. It's, it's for anybody. And what I also think about and one of my... Uh, old friends uh, uh, was a stage manager. He said, well, you're a storyteller and you've just chosen travel as your medium now with this podcast. And I said, yeah, that's true. Uh, because what I want to do with these stories is make us all divided by borders and religions and uh, partisan politics. Uh, we were all connected uh, through uh, humanity by being human be beings. We all hopefully have a love and desire for family and children and spirituality and transcendence, seeing people in other places in the world and learning how they dance and speak and what they eat and how they dress and seeing their children and seeing how they worship. Uh, I, I hope uh, that these stories connect us all across these uh, challenging times and uh, barriers. Man, I totally agree. It's like storytelling is one of those things that, like you say, brings us together, even though if two people listen to the same story, like you say, if you know the place or if you know if you've been through the thing that's happening in the story, it colors how you hear the story. But even with that, it really brings people together. And I think travel also does this because you're out there and you're you're vulnerable. You're out there, you're maybe by yourself, but you're in a place that's not yours. You're meeting in the middle ground a lot of the times. And I think, I don't know, that vulnerability, I always bring it up. What are your thoughts on, on vulnerability in travel and out of travel? It's funny. Uh, I teach a course in uh, the theater school at USC called Solo Performance. It's autobiographical storytelling. And one of my mantras and one of the maxims that I offer the, the students are is that vulnerability is your greatest strength. So uh, that means that going deep within yourself and uncovering your secrets, your wounds, your those are your treasures. Uh, and it's not the glib stories that 
touch people. It's the, the deepest stories inside, the ones about our families and our breakups and our uh, offenses and the things that frighten us, uh, that make us vulnerable, that uh, move an audience. The same thing is true in uh, screenwriting and movie making and novel writing and any story. Uh, for example, in the beginning of uh, uh, a film called Juno, the lead character, a 16-year-old girl, is pregnant right at the top of the story. And that's a, a challenging situation for the character. So the story is driven by what her choices are and what she will do. Will she give up the baby? Baby? Will she have it adopted? Will she uh, have an abortion? So Rocky, you know, down on his luck. So we're always rooting for the underdog who is the vulnerable protagonist in the story. And travel often puts you in a vulnerable position because you're not always in control like you usually are when you're in the comfort of your daily routine at home. Yeah, man. I think that that vulnerability puts you in that place, like you say, as as maybe the underdog, as someone who I think it changes how people react to you. You know, you you going up and asking how to get somewhere or anything like that is you opening up and being vulnerable. If you're if you're not opening up and being vulnerable, you're probably not leaving your house in the morning. And I think that being vulnerable and that opening up really allows people to see you as a fellow human like oh this guy he's all right you know because i can see him being vulnerable it's it's something i think about all the time it's something i find really interesting and it must you must come across it a lot like you say in the in the the drama and the acting and everything like this all the the theater space you got and, and particularly in storytelling and in autobiographical storytelling you know autobiographical storytelling is is something like uh podcasting and uh, if it's just narcissistic and uh, something that better left to the couch in a therapist's room then uh, then leave it there but if you have an artistic point of view about the story that you've experienced then there's something universal in your microcosm of a story and that's why people will identify with you and root for you if you are the protagonist, just the way uh, Dylan and Woody Allen, the two other storytellers uh, in two different mediums, are the central characters in their work. You know, I, I, something else came to mind. It's a little funny. It's part of my clown history uh, background, uh, sort of making a fool of myself to uh, allow other people to laugh. People say that the French are you know, tough and particularly anti-American. So I took a little French in high school and I can uh, just about get by. But I often present myself with uh, uh, these words, uh, je suis un stupide américain et je parle uh, solo un poco de français, mixing <laughs> Spanish and French. And, uh, and usually people will suddenly smile. They'll see that I'm trying to speak their language, that I'm not very good at it. I am vulnerable. And suddenly we're 
two human beings who are trying to communicate instead of an angry foreign American uh, who they have so much stuff against. Man, that's so funny. We really are the same person, right? So <laughs> in uh, in Brazil, I mean, I, I started learning Portuguese years ago, but I was learning it from my, my ex-girlfriend, my then girlfriend, and uh, she grew up in rural Sao Paulo. And uh, her accent there, which I inherited, is like learning English in... I don't know, like a, a Boston accent, you know, it's, it's not, you know, oh, yeah. so imagine someone coming over from Brazil to the States and they, they learn English in a Boston accent. It was just like that. And so whenever I would talk to people, they would notice and I would notice and notice this is in, in the first three seconds. And then that's the first thing I'd bring up. And it's that it's the exactly the same as you. It's the vulnerability of it. It's that opening up. Look, I'm a guy. I, I mess things up. You know, it's that vulnerability that opens up that conversation, opens up that connection and just opens up people as people. You know, it's really important. Yeah. Well, you probably heard that uh, I was a professional clown for many years, uh, about seven years. Uh, uh, but I wasn't a circus clown and I didn't learn, uh, I didn't study uh, circus skills like juggling or elephant riding. Uh, I sort of made up my own style of chaplain-esque character improvising uh, in public. I, I ran for mayor of New York City as clown candidate Gino Camisi, and I, and I finished fifth out of four <laughs> candidates. Nice. Uh, and, and I formed a company where we would go out in public, uh, and New York City is so jam-packed with people, you could just go out on any street corner. But we went to Yankee Stadium and the Staten Island Ferry and Bloomingdale's department store, and we were so out of context, these uh, clowns in white face and bowler hats and big colorful costumes, and it would disrupt the reality that uh, New Yorkers were living, and they knew they were there, uh, we were there, to make them laugh and to uh, make fun of the makeup and uh, pretend to throw us uh, ourselves off the ferry or to scratch their heads or direct traffic in the middle of the street, climb desks when we went into the middle of an office and create sort of public theatrical mayhem uh, to uh, make the everyday experience, something comical and bigger and lighthearted and uh, a relief from the day-to-day -day grind that most people find themselves in. Oh, man, that's so funny. And it's it's so similar in a lot of ways to what you're doing now with e-travel, with e-trules. It's, it's you putting yourself out there, obviously, and and bringing people a different side of life to think about, taking them out of that day-to-day, -day, out of that routine, out of what they perceive to be real life and showing them a different way, showing them stuff that isn't the news, isn't the negative, isn't all this. I love that through the podcast, and you're probably doing other other things as well, I'd imagine, that, uh, along the same line, but I love that you're still doing that. That's so cool. Yeah, I, I'm surprised uh, at myself sometimes. I've been an artist for, for just about 50 years now. Uh, and the riskiest thing I've done is I became a first-time father of our Indonesian nephew from Sumatra, who's now nine years old, living in my home in Echo Park. And I, my full-time job, actually, is Mr. Mom. <laughs> <laughs> 
I take him to school every day. I dress him. I feed him. He's there by himself now, but I'll have to go home and pick up his friend Miguel and uh, have a play date and make them some waffles for lunch. <laughs> and uh, it's the most beautiful thing that I'm experiencing in life now as I'm terrified about retiring from a job that I've had at the university for 30 years. Uh, suddenly, without ever having uh, anticipated or imagined that becoming a father in life, and particularly at 69 years old, life is what happens while you're waiting for your plans to work out, right, Aiden? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Is that a? It's not a Lennon quote, is it? I can't it is. There you it go. Is, but, but I heard. He, I heard he actually heard it from a little old lady in Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah, that sounds about right. There are some smart people in Liverpool. That's right. <laughs> so, how did you meet your wife? Where did you meet her? Bali. I did meet her in Bali, uh, completely by accident and incident or synchronicity or magic. Uh, uh, I was at an ATM machine getting a rupiah, millions of rupiah, <laughs> the only time I've been a millionaire in life. Uh, man, I love getting uh, rupiah out. It's so much fun. <laughs> uh, and I turned around looking for the Matahari Mini Mall or Maxi Mall, and I literally just asked the first two people in front of the ATM machine uh, for directions. And uh, there were two, two women, one a little younger than the other. And uh, I said, excuse me, do you speak any English? Can you tell me how to get to the Matahari? And uh, the younger one uh, said something like, Matahari? And then she pointed uh, straight and then to the right and the left. And she didn't speak much English. And I said, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And I headed off in the right direction. And then about 30, about 15 seconds later, someone tapped me on the shoulder and I turned around and uh, it was her. And she said, I saw you, meaning I'll show you. Uh, and uh, we walked around for the next three hours and then we emailed for about six months. And then I went back to Bali for a Christmas vacation for about a month and we traveled all across Java. And then on August 3rd, 2001, just a month before 9-11, she came here. Uh, very risky, very brave. And uh, we got married on Valentine's Day, 2003. Oh, wow. So you've just, you've just, uh, what's it called? You just celebrated your ooh, 14th, 14th anniversary. Wow. Yeah. And, and now we have a, a young boy in our life. So it's all pretty miraculous and uh, un uh, unanticipated, un unimagined. <laughs> Man, the best things always are unanticipated, right? <laughs> Tra travel is a hundred percent like that, right? Exactly. It's, it's not. It's not going to see the 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 famous site or the ruins. It's what happens along the way, and when you get lost, and when you meet a woman who becomes your wife in front of the ATM machine. <laughs> yeah, that's why I've I've always thought I've always felt weird about planning. Like, I've never been a planner. It's always like, oh, I'm going to go to Vietnam. What are you going to do there? I don't know. We'll we'll see what happens. You know, because that's that's what happens. You see what happens. And then stuff happens. You meet someone and you get married. You know? Yeah, I, I, could, I, I couldn't agree more. It's crazy. It's crazy. So I've heard about your, well, on your podcast, I was taking a listen and you were talking about yours and your wife's differences in <laughs> preferred travel style, shall we say? Well, this is a recent story called uh, Love and the Devil's Nose. Uh, uh, and there is a train ride in southern Ecuador that you take from a little town in Alausi in the Andes. Uh, 
and it takes you to El Nariz del Diablo, the nose of the devil. And it's an architectural train feat where you crawl and switch back up and down these mountains. But <laughs> it, we were, it was our first extended trip shortly after our marriage in 2003. So I used the architecturally demanding train feat as a metaphor for marriage with stops and starts and breakdowns and switchbacks and on the train and off the train. And my wife decides to take the trip and not take the trip and, and go back home to LA and not go back home to LA. So, uh, that, that's what I, I liked about that particular story. It was a travel adventure as a metaphor for our marriage and for life itself. <laughs> that's great, man. So with this kind of different, with this different, I don't know, not maybe not outlook, but style of travel, it, do you have any sort of compromise or way of alleviating this? Do you stay in certain places? Do you, how do how does it work? You know, if you're, I'm, I'm, I'd, I'd imagine she's not so much into the, you know, backpacking type of stuff and stuff like that and staying in. Or, or, or the longhouses, you know, uh, she grew up in a third world, uh, pretty uh, simple uh, she grew up in a big town, but she uh, knows villages and poverty, and she's not interested in seeing more indigenous people. She knows enough of them, <laughs> and she's she's fallen in love with America. Uh, and unfortunately, that means that she likes clean showers and Hiltons and Ramadas, and uh, and I want to stay with the indigenous people in the outback. Uh, so yes, we have to compromise. Uh, I have to go for that clean shower and some clean towels at the end of the day. And, uh, we try to stay off these all night bus rides that go for 24 hours, you know, because, uh, I swore off them and then I and find myself back on them because sometimes travel is all about budget, right? So there has to be a compromise and has to be a way for a, a girl from uh, Maidan, Sumatra, and a New Yorker from uh, Westbury, Long Island, New York to find a, uh, not only a way to travel, but a way to bring up a kid and share a life together. <laughs> oh, man. I love that your compromise is clean, warm showers and comfort. Stability. I love how that's the, oh, I've got to have a warm shower now. <laughs> that's so yeah, funny. <laughs> got to wash, wash that hair and be clean. <laughs> yeah, it's such a chore, man. Tell me. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's not exactly the backpacker uh, model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I remember when I was uh, traveling up and down America on my first extended trip in 1970 in the, this car I told you about called Steppenwolf. I hadn't washed my hair in six months. It was like reggae Jufro knots. And <laughs> there was no way to undo it. We had to cut it all off. That was the only way. Oh, 1970, uh, hippie artist truels. <laughs> That's so cool, man. Man, we really are the same person. If I want to know what's in my future, I could just ask you. I could just, <laughs> hey, Truls, what am I going to be like when I'm 30? You know? <laughs> the, the crystal, the crystal ball. <laughs> Yeah. Man, was the, I imagine the car was named after the band? No. No? Dude, it, was, it was named after the Herman Hesse book, Steppenwolf. Uh -huh. Who the band probably named themselves That's after. going to say, hey, yeah. You, hey, you should check out Herman Hesse, Steppenwolf, and Sid Arthur. He was our uh, German Buddhist guru back in those days in the late 60s. Very simple, beautiful writing, uh, 
that uh, uh, connected us all, you know, in spiritual, uh, even travel ways, you know. Uh, Buddhists before, just when Buddhism was coming into the West, you know, and he had written the decades before, but he's a beautiful writer. Man, that's awesome. Well, I'll check that out and we'll also put it in the show notes if any of the listeners want to check that out. Cool, cool. That's cool. I love stuff like that. Like I stayed in a in an ashram in Rishikesh and it was an ashram to uh, Osho, O-S-H-O, you know, and I, I hear that he, that his kind of, his word came over to uh, to the States for a bit. I think I didn't, I think it ended badly, but <laughs> I think he got banned from the country or something like that anyway. <laughs> um, there, there are a lot of, uh, spiritual gurus, uh, that, uh, profited, uh, greatly from America, but ended up in the sex trysts and uh, being banished from our country. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and there are some still great teachers. Oh, of course. Of course. I mean, yeah, all that aside, Osho's kind of teachings and the, the, the things he says, it's, Fantastic, fantastic. And what was the what were the names that you were uh, saying before the Buddhist names uh, of the teachers or the books? Or yes, the Hesse books or the uh, Buddhist teachers. Ah, it was uh, Siddhartha. Is that like uh, oh, Sid Siddhartha is I think the original name of Gautama Buddha. That's the one. Siddhartha Gautama. Uh, uh, the Buddha's name was Siddhartha, uh, but the book by Hesse is called Siddhartha. Uh, and it's about a young man on a spiritual journey and transformation. And the other one was called Steppenwolf and Glass Bead Game and uh, several others. There's a, another simple writer. What is his name? Something like Paolo Coelho. Oh, Coelho. Uh, Paolo Coelho. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Hesse was his... Uh, forefather in uh, the late 60s culture. We all uh, fell in love with Hesse, and I think uh, Steppenwolf uh, took their name from uh, his book. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I love Paolo Coelho too, the alchemist. I mean, a lot yes. of travelers have read The Alchemist. It's fantastic. He's great. One thing I love is uh, Siddhartha, the, the name of the Buddha. It sounds like a bloke in London, you know, like a plumber. Like, all right, mate, I'm Siddhartha, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, something about it. It's really funny. <laughs> or maybe a, a, a pub in the late 60s. Huh? <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Well, man, this has been so much fun chatting to you. It's, it's uh, like I've said before, it's like talking to myself in the future. This is fantastic. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Time travel back to the future. <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. So, man, where can people check out e-travels with e-trules as well as on iTunes? Uh, the easiest way is to go to erictrules.com. Uh, forward slash podcast that's my name eric trules.com forward slash podcast and of course they can find it on itunes uh, but we have a player on the website that you can see all the past episodes and uh see the show notes and a lot of uh, photos and visuals and backstory so uh, i hope your listeners will uh, check it out and uh, hear some uh, e-travels with e-trules thanks a lot for having me on the show hayden it's been really fun no worries at all man no worries at all by subscribing to Travel Stories Podcast.